Hello and welcome back to episode two in our Points of Discussion podcast on Should Hydratinitis Superativa Be Treated Aggressively? This program is brought to you by the Pedra Acne and HS Focus Study Group. Before we get started, make sure that you've had a chance to listen to episode one, where Dr. Yasmin Krikorian outlines so beautifully the options for non-aggressive treatment. You can find that on iTunes, Spotify, and Google. One more bit of housekeeping before we begin. It's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. Now, I would like to turn it over to our program moderator, Dr. Irene Lara Corrales. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Toronto and a staff physician in pediatric dermatology at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. She is currently the Pediatric Dermatology Fellowship Director, and she co-chairs PEDRA's Acne and HS Focus Study Group. I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Lara Corrales. Thank you for joining us for episode two. So we are here with Dr. Andrews, and we are now going to talk about more aggressive treatments that we use to treat our pediatric patients with hydratinitis superativa or HS. Dr. Andrews. Hi. So um, just to kind of define what we mean or what I mean by aggressive treatments, um, in addition to things like um, the use of immunosuppressive therapy, uh, systemic retinoids, oral retinoids, biologic therapy, and surgical interventions, part of what I consider aggressive treatment is also the multidisciplinary approach, um, which incorporates the care, monitoring, education, uh, and evaluation of pediatric patients with hydratinitis superativa in a range of specialties. Um, including um, psychologists, mental health counselors, um, nutritionists, and uh, dietary experts, endocrinologists when necessary, um, as well as other uh, valuable specialties that bring more to the team than just a dermatologic approach um, primarily. Um, So as you all know, hydratinitis is a chronic debilitating inflammatory disease um, with rates of progression um, that tend to sort of outweigh sort of the stasis when it comes to the longevity and the chronicity of the disease. And because of that, I support more aggressive treatment as early as medically necessary for pediatric patients with this. Um, I believe I come from more of a practical approach where most of the patients I'm seeing are already in that moderate to severe or severe phase. And that has a lot to do with access to care issues, um, especially in the at-risk populations who are more prone to things like uh, food deserts, obesity, Um, limited access to primary, if not specialist care. Um, So a lot of the the treatments that I think are recommended beyond the topicals um, and things like that are usually first line by the time a patient walks in my door with HS. I I think you bring up great points. Like uh, that kind of multidisciplinary care is sometimes not available in every setting and that makes it a big challenge because 
of course, like many of these patients might benefit, especially with the many comorbidities that we see in patients with HS uh, from this approach. But sometimes we kind of encounter them on our own in our pediatric dermatology practices. And we have to think of so much more than the skin. If we don't have kind of the ability to see these patients in a multidisciplinary clinic, what kind of role do you think that we need to play to uh, be able to fulfill all this patient's needs? So I, I think that's a really good question. Um, and that is a difficult situation when, when it arises. Um, I certainly don't think I could practice pediatric dermatology if I didn't have my Rolodex of mental health counselors and other colleagues who are experienced in this. Um, but when access is a problem to those specialties as well, um, you know, there might be other interventions or other social system caveats that we might be able to include to get patients and their families rides to wherever they need to get to, especially if it's a transportation issue, make sure that they have access to follow-up appointments, um, you know, sort of doing uh, multidisciplinary clinics for HS where other providers can come into one clinic and screen and see patients all at the same time to make it easier for one family to meet with multiple different providers is also an option. Um, I, I think that answers your question, but let me know if I did it. Yeah, no, I think we're seeing more and more this kind of uh, multidisciplinary clinics, especially in the bigger academic centers, and that is great for our patients. I think one of the things that we uh, showed in our paper, but also has been shown in other manuscripts in the literature, is that by the time our pediatric patients are presenting and get a diagnosis, they already have kind of more chronic damage in their skin. They already have scars. They might already present with fistulas. Uh, especially this uh, age is so vulnerable because uh, it interferes with their quality of life. They're attending school. Uh, if there is odor or discharge, this is debilitating for them. So how do you uh, think we should be approaching this more aggressively when we start managing them? What else can we do about right. it? Well, you know, I think it's easy for us to say, you know, skin comes first as dermatologists, but personally, I believe um, a lot of the anxiety, depression, thoughts of self-harm and harming others are, are things that, you know, and also going back to your question before, need to be screened for. I think these are things that even a dermatologist can sort of look at on their own without requesting the help of their colleagues, examining quality of life and the impact of life that this condition creates in children who don't already, you know, have a supportive environment or a supportive system in place that encourages them to sort of, you know, get the help they need or get their parents to get them the help they need. Um, continue to go, continuing to go to school or be productive and active in middle and high school is, is already challenging now with the age of, you know, um, online classes and everything like that. And, and, and that might be a benefit educationally for kids, but sort of that social withdrawal that a condition like this can lead to um, is devastating. And I think we're starting to see the impact of that now, um, post-COVID, where we are seeing more anxiety and depression, as well as, unfortunately, suicidal ideation and suicide in these highly at-risk ages between the, uh, 12 and 19. Um, just kind of going on what you said, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think this was from your paper. Um, you know, the average age of onset in the pediatric patient is approximately 12 and a half. And the time to diagnosis is around 14.4 years of age. So you're looking at almost a two-year window of chronic, you know, progression of inflammatory conditions. So that practically speaking, you know, my, my case in point for the argument is that by the time they walk into my door, I think some of the conservative treatments might be included 
but it's usually, you know, time to start thinking about more aggressive therapies. And that goes not just when they walk into my door, but you guys, as, as I'm sure, you know, you get those consultations at three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, you know, my daughter has, you know, a really painful lesion in her axilla and we're in the emergency room and they want to incise and drain it. And you're screaming, no, 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 don't let them cut into it. We have other things. Um, so, you know, I think we can only rely on ourselves so much. We also have to do our part to aggressively educate our peers, especially in urgent care and emergent care settings. Um, because unfortunately, a lot of the things that are done to these patients before they have a correct diagnosis can actually exacerbate hydratinitis worse. So I think a lot of aggressive education is important too. Um, for our pediatric colleagues as well. Yeah, and, and I think we are so limited by the approved treatments that we have for hydradenitis. So probably right now, the only FDA approved medication for our pediatric patients, uh, and it's just for those 12 and over, is adalinumab. Right. Yeah. So this is we are considering for the purposes of this discussion, one of the aggressive treatments. Uh, what is your experience? Do you think that this makes a huge difference for our patients? I think like with everything else, I think there's a subset of pediatric patients that are excellent responders. I think there's a subset that are average responders. And I think there's a subset that are non-responders. But what I will say is I think the advent and the introduction of biologics, particularly this TNF-alpha inhibitor has sort of moved the research and education about hydradenitis supertiva into the direction it needs to go, as we've seen with other conditions like psoriasis and atopic dermatitis, it wasn't until we started performing blockades on these inflammatory um, cytokine cascades that we were better able to see which particular cytokines and interleukins were involved so that future trials can take place with you know, a legitimate scientific hypothesis saying, well, it might not be TNF-alpha, it might be IL-17 or TH-17. And I think because of that sort of aggressive approach, we are seeing more um, you know, proof of concept studies come out now for HS so that hopefully in the near future, there will be better medications available, but likely along the same line of an aggressive approach to them. Yeah, and, and I think some of these patients, like um, especially those that don't do great what we have to offer now, like sometimes end up uh, being sent to uh, surgery for consideration mm -hmm. of surgical interventions. When do you think that we should be considering that for our patients? I think that's an excellent question. I think it also is going to be case by case, but I can think of at least a handful of my pediatric patients in just the last two, three years alone that weren't able to lift their arm um, because of the severity of their condition who are already on things like infliximab and adalimumab at the same time, who've already been on several courses of clindamycin, rifampin, um, acetretin, isotretinoin. I think there's a point in time where even the aggressive medical treatments aren't going to relieve that pain and return a sort of normal functional status to these kids' lives. You know, it, and I agree with, with what's been said prior. You know, I think, you know, recommending weight loss and exercise to me is always befuddled the mind because I, I don't think those are things you can do when you've got nine or 10 out of 10 pain on a daily basis, the inability to raise one's arm or open one's legs or lift one's breasts just to wash in those areas usually to me sends a profound message that it's time to sort of step up the game and be, be a little more aggressive and start thinking about surgical interventions. Yeah, and one of the things that sometimes is left unaddressed in our patients is their pain. Right. Um, and sometimes we need to be quite aggressive to be able to manage pain. Um, do you have any tips on how to um, address pain for uh, more severe patients? 
So while I would rely on my colleagues in pain medicine to help with the pharmacological aspect, I also look to my, um, my pediatric psychologists who do a lot of non, I would say, Western medicine approaches such as meditation, um, you know, desensitization therapies, even hypnosis, sleep therapy. Um, there's so many different avenues to be able to kind of turn this pain into something that's a little more livable for these kids. Um, you know, it's not just about prescribing pain medications or anti-inflammatories sometimes. Sometimes it's really about trying to modify the behavior or the response to behaviors that uh, the pediatric patients have when they're going through this. And I think that's something that's a crutch that we can lean on for some time. Um, but, you know, I, I, like I said, I think a multidisciplinary approach with pain management experts along with, you know, psychologists and mental health counselors is really the best way to manage this going forward, at least while we're waiting for some of the aggressive medical or surgical interventions to take place. Because as we were discussing before, you know, sometimes access to a surgeon who's willing to do, you know, an excision or a de-roofing in a pediatric patient is, is difficult. You know, I think we as pediatric dermatologists try to be the best at everything, including medical intervention, surgical interventions, um, and some of these other things that sort of go outside of our lane. But, you know, I think what we want is for these kids to have access to the expertise and care that they need. Um, so, you know, like we were saying before, it's difficult for them to get into a surgeon that might be able to do something like this as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrews. I think you bring lots of great points to, to the discussion. So I think that we will uh, conclude our second episode here and, and uh, please joining us in the next uh, episode for further discussion. Thanks for listening to episode two of Points of Discussion, Should Hydratinitis Superativa Be Treated Aggressively? Thank you so much to Dr. Andrews for highlighting the importance of multidisciplinary care in pediatric patients with HS. And thank you so much to Dr. Irene Lara Corrales for moderating this episode. I would also like to thank our sponsors, AbbVie Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, Sanofi Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this independent medical education program. Pedra is solely responsible for all of the program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. For further discussion on this topic with Dr. Irene Lara Corrales and Drs. Kerkorian and Andrews, be sure to tune in to Episode 3, available now on iTunes, Spotify, and Google. Thanks so much for listening.